0: Hello and welcome to the That's Afterlife podcast with DM Esther Anson and Adrian Mills.
1: Hello and welcome to the podcast. Hi, Adrian, how are you?
0: I'm delighted to be here again with you, Esther. How's things?
1: Well, yes, we're here virtually. We're not here together yet. In fact, it's years since I was in the same room with, a, with another person apart from my daughter, who's in my bubble.
0: Well, and here we are on Zoom. I remember a time when Zoom was an ice cream, let alone something we'd be doing for the rest of our lives. Oh, that's what it feels
1: like. I'm happy to tell you it's before my time. Um, I don't know about your week. I've, I've got good news and I've got bad news.
0: Oh, I'll take the good news first, please.
1: Well, the good news is that the Prime Minister has decided to celebrate my birthday.
0: Oh, of course. June. We're all going to be having a party to celebrate uh, freedom and your birthday. My
1: birthday is June the 22nd, just mentioning. And all these restrictions are supposed to be over forever on June the 21st. Now, do I trust him? Do I book the caterer? Do I draw out the guest list? Or do I think, well, there'll be another glitch, there'll be another rollback, there'll be another flip-flop?
0: Think positive. Book the party but what a celebration after the madness of the last year. I had my jab this week as well. How was that? I feel absolutely great. So I'm, I, There was a li- lovely old lady who thought she was having the Tizer injection, not the Pfizer injection.
1: <laughs> well, that would put bubbles in her veins,
0: certainly. I had a result this week as well. Um, I had £1,300 worth of fines from a council because they changed the signage on the road. And I won. And it just reminded me of the Jobsworth hat on That's Life, which I don't have to award to this particular council now.
1: Did you threaten them with it?
0: Waved it at them. And that was enough to put the fear of God into them, obviously. I stood there shouting, Esther Ranson, And they locked the doors immediately.
1: Exactly. Exactly. We've got more good news because our special guest this week is Michael Palin. CERN Michael Palin. Everyone's favourite traveller, travelling companion. Wonderful. Wonderful.
0: Everybody you speak to, if you mention Michael Palin's name, they love him.
1: I knew him before Monty Python. I knew him, well, back in the dawn of time. He did a, a show called The Late Show and I was the researcher on it. So we first met then with his fantastic partner, Terry Jones. They were writing and performing together.
0: I'll look that up in history books, Esther.
1: Yes, do. Yes. Or maybe the Old Testament.
0: And we also have uh, our afterlife teas, um, which is basically, as the programme suggests, it's called That's Afterlife. Uh, what object uh, will he be taking into the afterlife? And um, what's the afterlife going to look like? And, and also, if uh, people do want to contact us, I mean you know things that are making them mad or things that have you know, brought to their attention that's uh, really cheered their lives up, then our email address is hello at that'safterlife.com. That's hello at that'safterlife.com. We really want to hear from our listeners. so uh, please drop us a line.
1: Please send us your life hacks.
0: Mary from Skipton has um, emailed in with a life hack. She says, uh, something you talked about, as we're saying uh, these life hacks in previous shows, why don't you paint a dot of different coloured nail varnish on each house key and a small dot onto the lock itself? Then you'll never be stood at your door trying different keys again. You just match the colours.
1: Mary, that is a brilliant idea. The only problem is that all my nail varnish, which I don't use anymore. Thank you, lockdown. In the olden days, it had to be hair perfect, nails perfect, pencil skirt, tight little jacket. Now, me and my fluffy onesie, no nail varnish. I've only got nail varnish one (laughs) colour. However, however, I can tell you somebody who had nail varnish of many different colours. Who's that? Princess Diana. Oh, really? Yeah. Because... Professor Yacoub, you know, the heart transplant surgeon, told me that Professor Yacoub used to arrive in his wards very late at night when there were little children who'd had transplants and were lying awake and deeply miserable and, you know, worried and alone and lonely. And she would arrive with lots of little bottles of coloured nail varnish in her handbag and she'd take it out and she'd talk to them and paint their nails, any colour they chose. And he said it was incredible how he saw their, their faces got pink again, their whole immune system bucked up. She really had got healing hands and healing nail varnish.
0: Do you know, that's a really lovely story.
1: We got another email. George from Pinner says... What was it like playing in panto, Esther?
0: Oh, uh,
1: yes, you did do panto, didn't you? Of course I did. I was Dick Whittington in Bodner.
0: Stop there. I think that's, that's the best headline
1: ever. Absolutely. I was wearing these very long leather boots, um, way higher than my knees, right up to, you know, wherever. And uh, they made me sing and dance. What an error. What an error.
0: Now, now tell me, was Desmond and the family sat in there squirming or were they applauding as well?
1: Desmond was hilarious because he kept saying, you can't do this. This is madness. Esther. what are you doing? You've only just given birth because I had <laughs> only just given birth. Um, what are you doing going to Bogner Anyway, when I said yes to it, he hired a large pink charabang, put all my friends and family into it with boxes of beer and, and song sheets. And they all drove from London to Bognor to come to this damn pantomime. And from that moment, as he told everyone, we went into negative bank balance because it cost <laughs> so much more to do that than it did for any anything I was paid. But I loved it. I loved it. I can still remember striding onto the stage with my picnic in a knapsack on a stick over my shoulder and shouting to the audience. Are you enjoying yourself? And they shouting, yes. And me saying, why? What are you doing?
0: I, I, used, to, I used to love uh, everything about it. Esther, I've just had a great idea. Next year. Go on then. Let's put our names forward for Panto.
1: Look, I'm not doing it again because they started to offer me, instead of Principal Boy, they started to offer me Vegetable Fairy.
0: Oh, I thought you were going to say Wicked Witch.
1: Thanks. <laughs> I think unfortunately you know what these these pantos these days are really big business they are what keeps the theatre going for the rest of the year so that's why I think everybody was so deeply upset and worried at not being able to do pantos this year
2: what people I
0: always think don't understand it's what gets families in people that have never been to the theatre before to see the panto and hopefully they get an experience that they're not going to get anywhere else and they're going to come back during the year
1: And the worst memory I have of my panto was the last night, because of course they play practical jokes. I'm sure the same thing happened to you. Oh, yes. So I walked onto the stage with my trusty stick and the picnic and the kerchief and the end of it, threw it off in order to dance in my boots. (laughs) And it came hurling back from the wings <laughs> and I threw it off again and it came hurling back again. And I suddenly realised that this stick was going to be thrown at me wherever I threw it. So in the end I, I gave up, but it was, oh, it was fun. It was lovely. Live theatre. Beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> Our guest of honour this week has been responsible for entertaining us, informing us, fascinating us and charming us, Sir Michael Palin. And very, very kind of you, Michael, because you're writing at the moment. What are you writing? I'm working on a book
2: about my great-uncle Harry, who was interesting because he he died at the Somme in, in 1916 at the age of 31, I think. And it's just his life interested me because it was almost totally unsuccessful. Um, at the time, Victorian families, you know, he came from a very successful family, but he was a seventh child and I think he was just rather marginalised and I want to find out why Um, I mean he went to India he went to New Zealand as a farmer and joined the army there came back and fought at Gallipoli and all that so that's I'm 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 writing the story at the moment
1: but the thing is what I would say to you and you probably discovered it with your uncle Harry if there's a member of your family that nobody talks about and you don't even know their name yeah there's probably a reason.
2: Yes, well it's quite, you know, I'd quite like someone to just take over the Un- Uncle Harry story, but I feel I've got to try and do it myself. So um, I'm, finding, I'm finding out bits here and there and I'm not sure if he was a bad lot or just a lazy lot or, or he was, you know, a, a great free thinker who didn't buy into all that Victorian sort of middle-class bourgeois stuff.
1: Well, good luck. I hope you enjoy writing it and I hope we all buy it.
0: (laughs) Can can I ask you one question? I know you've probably been asked this before. Are you surprised by the level of fame that has come your way? Of course
2: I am. (laughs) Of course I am. You know, I mean, the, I mean, the, the, it's, I suppose it's, yeah, you know, I'm lucky to have done work I enjoy doing, but it's all the rest of the stuff, like being president of Royal Geographical Society, yeah. and being made a Sir, and all that stuff, which I sometimes have to stop and think: is this a is this a sketch? I mean, <laughs> is, is this really is this really happening? Um, but I'm just I'm I'm grateful, really. I'm grateful to you know, be able to um, you know do do all these things. Um, but I I kind of I feel. With everything I do, that the um, the most important thing is the next thing you do, not the last thing you did, and all that. So I'm always I'm always thinking. I've got to keep ahead of myself. Mustn't rest on any laurels.
1: Can I ask you whether we have known each other for decades? We met on the Late Late Show, didn't we?
2: Yes, that's right. I mean, I do remember. I remember being entertained by you in in. off the, uh, your, your well, I can't remember where your flat was.
1: I can tell you, it was Hammersmith.
2: Hammersmith, yes. So you're not ashamed to talk about that, are you?
1: <laughs> I, I feel proud, proud of Happy Hammersmith. And I tell you what, you were there with Terry Jones, the lovely, much lamented Terry Jones. Oh, yeah. And my boss, Bernard Braden, was there. Oh, right, yes. And you were thrilled it. to meet him because he was... Like you, he was a pioneer in comedy, broadcast comedy.
2: Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Great sort of credential. Mm.
1: And then you went on, obviously, to the pythons. Mm. Now, I want to ask you a question. Mm. I feel you are a decent, upstanding, respectable man with high moral standards. How is it that you (laughs) play conscious pilot and a man who sells dead parrots with such skill? Well,
2: (laughs) I I think you can be a morally upstanding, a wonderfully worthy person, as you describe, but also um, able to step out of that to make an honest penny by acting, which is what it's called, what it's all about. So I realised I could make some, well, I had a talent for being people other than myself, which has been a great benefit because I myself am fairly dull.
1: Certainly not. But I do think you're Pontius Pilate and... Yeah. And the famous Biggest dickus sketch scene in The um, Life of Brian, which I was watching this afternoon, because you can, thanks to the wonders of the internet, mm. and it made me weep with laughter.
2: Well, uh, I'm glad. I don't want to make you weep in any way or shape or form, but with laughter, that's fine. All I would say is that Pontius Pilate was probably modelled on, everything's modelled on your own life and what you've seen and what you've experienced and I think it was sitting in church on many Sundays uh, watching the visiting preacher who very often had a rather strange tick or some sort of little facial <laughs> uh, facial expression which was rather odd or even voice that was rather odd and I, I looked around and I said is anyone else laughing and no one else was so I think it was a sublimated way of in the end making making up for that moment where everyone should have been laughing and I was the only one.
1: <laughs> I do hope our listeners know what I'm talking about and think that I haven't invented this out of a disgraceful imagination. This was a very important scene in the life of Brian where they were discussing a Roman gentleman and that was his name and Michael was as Pontius Pilate condemning any soldier that laughed at this name to fight with um, ferocious lions uh, or, or gladiators. And I seem to remember that Biggest Dickers had a wife with an even more disgraceful name. Yes,
2: I think I made that up at the time when I had to try and make the guards who I was acting with laugh so I could stop them laughing. So I, I think I mean, he has a wife, he has a wife, you know, I think I say, <laughs> you know what her name is, and they're all sort of shaking a bit, and I said, the incontinentia buttocks, and immediately Charles McEwen, you know, or whoever it was, started to laugh, which was the effect we needed, because we did a number of takes on that particular uh, scene, but in each one, they had to be on the verge of collapsing with laughter. And after about take 12, it's not so easy to reproduce that. So I had to keep thinking of something else. So Incontinentia Buttocks came into our ken.
1: And what was so funny about that, because I'm sorry to dwell on it, but I do think it was a total masterpiece, that film, from beginning to end. And you had such trouble getting it, finance because I suppose it was breaking so many taboos I mean actually making a funny film set in and around the New Testament must have been so shocking.
2: Yes I mean some people felt that others didn't the two people at EMI who championed it obviously felt it was um, you know legitimate and new and different and original would bring forth a whole lot of new kind of comedy and, and and new kind of writing, whereas the man who ran EMI at the time um, thought quite the opposite, that this was a disgusting sort of um, piece of of national decadence and should not be seen by anybody. Unfortunately, he read the script about two months after the film had been financed, so we were already building bits of Brian stuff down in Tunisia, when the head of EMI said, I'm not financing that anymore. And uh, we, were, we were out on the streets again. And that's where George Harrison, thank my sweet Lord, came to the rescue and said, you know, that he loved Python and he would, he, would, he would give us the money to make it. Talking of
0: loving Python, so such a different style of comedy that completely changed everything. And if you hadn't seen that episode that night, you'd, you weren't
2: spoken to at school. You must have loved that time. I mean it was a familiar feeling what you described because of course I felt that when I watched the goon shows um all those years ago when I was you know 12 year old rushing back from school um they you know it was something completely anarchic surreal mm. my parents could not understand why men should speak in high falsetto voices and push people into the river Thames and all that you just it was quite beyond them and that was rather a thrill and I think this was the same for Python fans. It was quite a thrill to have something which was yours, not theirs, not, not the other generation, but your generation. You know, and if they couldn't understand it, so much the better, because <laughs> it gave you, you know, that little sort of um, um, feeling that, that uh, you, 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 know, you were smarter than them in a way, but also it was something that you had discovered. I think that was the, that's the important
1: thing. You know, I used to go to the recordings of the Goon Show. I feel so privileged. I had a friend at school who used to send off to the BBC for tickets, obviously for the radio. And um, watching it, it was amazing. Peter Sellers used to arrive in a Rolls Royce. Yes. Spike Milligan used to arrive on on a bicycle. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because Spike, who, who was the genius behind it, was paid pennies. Yeah. And Peter was already a you know a major film star. Yeah. But it was such fun and you did feel in that audience of kids, you did feel that you were part of a club.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because most people didn't, as I say, didn't understand it. Yeah. Um, so it made the, for those who did understand it, it was that much more intense and jewel-like. Did you, was it was it very, very funny when they did it or was it actually technically constrained?
1: It was technically completely unconstrained. Yeah. Um, Being radio, obviously, no cameras to get in the way, they were clustered around a mic playing practical jokes on each other. And the orchestra playing... practical. Ray Ellington and his band playing practical jokes on each other that only the audience could enjoy because we could see what was happening, whereas the audience at home just heard, you know, mysterious gusts of mirth for no particular reason. I
2: can remember that because I can remember hearing the audience laugh at something I couldn't see. Mm. That sort of made me a little bit sort of, um, I felt a little bit sidelined by that. What are they laughing at now? What have I missed? So I was very, uh, yeah, respect if you'd been in the Goon Show audience.
1: Yeah, well, there you are. I remember, excuse me saying so, once I knew that Prince Charles loved the Goons and I did once meet him and tell him and he just looked at me and he said, lucky you. But we knew we were lucky, we knew we were privileged, you know. Um, and then now, of course, you incorporate your humour into your fantastic travel films. And I just love the compilations that we've been enjoying during lockdown. It's, they work like a dream, Michael. I wish I could say I'd invented the format,
2: but um, a company came up with this formula of a way of looking back at your travels um, using archive, which of course is like, as you know, like gold during the COVID period. Anyone who's got any archive, it just saves saves mm. you having to go through the business of filming outdoors and all the problems you have there. So they came up with this idea that I should just talk through, look at them again and talk through and give a few memories. How did that transition take place? There you are, Monty
0: Python, an actor, you were in, I, you were in Fish Called Wonder, one of my favorite films. Um, and then all of a sudden, I've got you on my screen as this phenomenally great travel presenter.
2: Well, I didn't actually have any, and, and have throughout my life, never had any clear idea of what, of a particular goal I wanted to go for. All I've, all I've been interested in is observing the human race. And that's, you know, that, that's where the comedy comes in and, and acting out those observations. And I suppose uh, geography and travel comes from the same sort of instinct to want to go out there and see the world and see what other people are doing and look at it and absorb it and then comment on it and bring home. So I suppose there's not a huge difference between the two. They're basically about curiosity but I I mean I was very lucky because I uh, had done one documentary about a railway journey from London to um, Scotland and a director spotted me and said oh you know you can do You're the man to do this documentary series around the world in 80 days, which I've invented. And uh, I I was lucky to be, you know, his choice.
1: Yeah, well, more than luck, I think. A bit of talent there. I want to ask you some questions about the world, because you know more about the world than most people. Now, you've been to the place I would most love to have been to, and I never have. I've got a bucket list of places that I long to go to. And... Unbucket bucket list of places that I haven't been to and don't want to go to. <laughs> yeah. And then one that begins with F, the places that I have been to and never want to go back to again. <laughs>
2: yes, the F file. I like that. Exactly. Uh, exactly.
1: Okay. Now the place that's on my bucket list that you've been to, and I would love to know if it is as fascinating as my dream is, that it's, you know, amazing, is Timbuktu.
2: Well, Yes, it is fantastic. I mean, to, to actually set foot on the main street of Timbuktu is something utterly remarkable. It's just something about the name, the exotic feeling, the fact it seems so, so far away and so magical, and to find it actually exists is wonderful, but it's sad. It's a sad place now, really, and a lot of it's very run-down. And in fact, of all the places we'd been to, I think Timbuktu is one of those we'd not be able to go back to again because of, Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's terrorist activity in the area. But we did go there and it was, was wonderful to be there for a couple of days, yes.
1: So I, I can put it on my effort list rather than my bucket list, in that case. I, I,
2: think, I think probably, but you still, I think you ought to go if you can, just to say I've been to Timbuktu. It's a bit like saying I've been up Everest. Have you ever felt slightly under threat or sort of uh, worried about your own
0: safety on all these trips?
2: Yes, I mean, I'm generally I'm a real optimist and I think somehow we're going to get through um, whatever happens. And we work very closely in most countries we go to with a local person, it's very, very important. Not someone from the tourist board, because they'll just want to show you the, the museum of the cathedral or the <laughs> casino, but somebody who really loves the country and knows about it. And we took, um, we, we went with um, a Gurkha regiment, uh, regimental commander to somewhere in Nepal, and the Maoist guerrillas were operating in the area. And at uh, the end of a day's filming, quite happy filming in a the village, um, the, these Maois came along and there was sudden silence across the village and they took our Gurkha commander and two others into the forest to kind of talk to them about what we should be doing or not, what we should not be doing. And they didn't appear and they didn't arrive the next morning and we realised they'd been kidnapped. And uh, the the feeling in the village changed overnight from being rather friendly and curious about us to just wanting us to get out and sullen looks and no help at all with any food or anything. So the next morning we just had to hightail it out of there as quickly as we could. And I've never had the feeling of being hated, not hated, but sort of not wanted quite as sort of um, strongly as as we did that morning when we left. In the end, the guys were freed, but it was uh, it was a, 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 it was a big issue at the time.
1: I've got two technical questions. What do you do about washing your socks or anything else? I mean, do you take travel wash or do you take, or is, does somebody do your laundry?
2: I do take travel wash. Yes, it is quite important. That, along with um, toilet paper, which is not on a roll but in a flat pack, that's very, very important. Why? What's wrong with a roll? Well, isn't it, where, where do you put it, really? Uh, basically and a roll somehow in your, you're your crammed in a, well, I don't want to go into, but, but a tiny little room with just a slit in the, in the <laughs> floor. And you have to balance, just uh, making sure you, you and, all right, you need two hands to get the paper off the roll. Only one hand to take it out of the flat back.
1: Right. I get you. I thought it was problems with the suitcase. I'm now following your drift. Well, <laughs> yes. What about, your, what about your family? Aren't they going, Michael, when are you coming home?
2: I don't know who they are, I don't know where they are. I'm told I've got three children and a wife, but I haven't seen them for centuries now. They're very good. I'm very blessed with having a very tolerant wife who's who's quite happy for me to, to go off traveling. I think largely because well, two things. One is that she doesn't particularly like that kind of roughy tufty outward bound travel. She would just rather go somewhere and have a nice, pleasant couple of weeks in a villa or something. But so she doesn't envy me going up from um, Mount um, Kilimanjaro or wherever. Um, and the other thing is that that uh, I think things work so much better clearly when I'm away. And when I come back, I find the house, I, I kind of. Arrogantly think, oh, I'm back now. Everything's going to be all right. It's quite the opposite. <laughs> back now, oh God, he's going to want to do this and that and all that.
1: Are you getting restless now? Do you uh, do you feel? Because you must have spent a long time at home now.
2: I have. You know, I've not been away from home overnight for over a year. Wow. I mean, this is quite unusual for me. Uh, but oddly enough, I've come to terms with it. I'm quite. I'm quite happy. I don't feel terribly frustrated.
1: Now, I'll tell you one of the things that, that um, when I was reading a little bit about your life and times, Michael, that struck mm. me was mm. you got your BAFTA award for playing a stammerer. Yes. Fish Called Wanda. You, uh, you got the award for the best supporting actor. Um, your father was a stammerer. My late husband was a stammerer. Yes. Mm and I have visited the Michael Palin Center for Stammering which um, is named obviously after you. It, and that is the course that you've told us you would like to, to discuss with us.
2: It came from being in A fishball Wonder which was playing Ken who had a stammer um, was quite controversial. Some stammerers thought it was jolly good that a, you know he played one of the main characters in the film and still had a stammer, others said it was um, it was cruel and unfair. Um, John Cleese had asked me to play the part um, because he knew that my father stammered, and he wanted to have someone playing the part who understood how a stammer worked. So you know what it, what effect it had on the people. So I mean that's how I took it on. And then it suddenly gave me this chance afterwards, um, really hearing from a man called Travers Reed, who was a stammerer himself. And was wanting to get me involved with the uh, um, uh, the association for research into stammering in childhood, uh, and a special therapist called Lena Rustin, who was doing some uh, very good work on therapy with children. And he had a great sense of humour about stammering, uh, Travers, and he he and I just got got on extremely well. And he said, "Would you we're going to have this centre? We'd like to give it your name." And I said, "Well." I'm, I'm against sort of having my name above the door, particularly everyone else will be doing the hard work. But I said, in terms of understanding a stammer, yes, it means a lot to me because I felt my father would have had a much better life and a very different life if he had had the sort of treatment that the Stammering Centre um, was offering. So it was as simple as that, really. I kind of, he'd been dead for 10 years, with so my dad, but I just felt he, I didn't want others to go through what he went through.
1: So we have Elaine Kelman with us, who is your chief therapist there. Are you there, Elaine? Yes, I'm here. Right. Well, I've obviously got the whole thing wrong because although my husband, um, funnily enough, he told the story about how he lost his stammer, he, he used to have enormous difficulty reading aloud at school. And one... Um, teacher forced him to read aloud over and over again and in the end he burst out cursing the teacher for which he got he got beaten actually oh, <laughs> but it did break through the stammer but apart from that i i have never really known cases of children who've been able to have the therapy which has cured the stammer but i gather that this i'm quite wrong and that that, that it's perfectly possible
3: Um, I would be cautious about using the word cure. I think what we can do is help children and their families enormously with the stammer so that what we want is for that child to be able to talk as freely as they want to and talk with confidence so that it just doesn't stop them from doing something they want to and doesn't make them feel frustrated or doesn't stop them from reading at school and things like that. So it's about kind of getting beyond the stammer, really. So sometimes it's there but it's not holding them back.
1: So how do you do do that with a child?
3: Thousands of children have been through our doors, and the most important thing we can do with, with them when they're young is help the parents to know how best to support them, because parents often feel really helpless and frustrated and anxious about the future. So if we can help parents to see how they can build up their child, their child's confidence, how they can really encourage their child to have a go. So if you can imagine your little girl who's only six trying to say something, you might think, oh, I'll rescue her, I'll do it for her, or I'll order her her pizza for her. But actually, what parents learn is that, no, what their job is, is to stand back and, and support the child to say, yeah, you can do this. And actually, building up that confidence can go a long way. You know, in schools, children have a very t- tough time with being kind of either just sort of mocked or imitated or some, sometimes outright bullying.
2: There's a kind of inclusivity about stammerers that we've got to we've got to try and um, increase awareness of. When my father stammered um, it was embarrassing all around we didn't really ever talk about why he stammered or what made him stammer and therefore one could get no further in, in sort of uh, overcoming just a feeling of embarrassment. But I mean, my, when I go to the Stamming Center and we have, uh, uh, and hear the, the children and the parents there, I realize that one's got to just get over that one's got to listen and got to talk about it and got to let them talk rather than feel they're a special case um, uh, marginalized because of, because of the way they speak. And that's, that's the hard work, but that's the work that's got to be done.
1: So if anybody listening to this is worried about someone, a child in the family or or an adult that has been held back all their lives through it, how do they get in touch with the Michael Palin Centre for Stammering?
3: Well, we have a website which is helpfully called michaelpalincentreforstammering.org. So uh, you can go to the website. And on the website, there's a telephone number because we have a, a helpline that we run every day for people just to ring up and say, I'm worried, you know, how can I get some help? So um, those resources are just freely available to anybody that wants to um, look for them. And I would really encourage people to get help. And sometimes adults might have had therapy in the past. You know, you're talking about your husband being beaten. There have been some pretty... um, interesting therapies in the past that might have been quite difficult experiences for people but now there's so much more is known about it there's so much more we can do and we really I mean it sounds a bit of a cliche but we really can change lives if we get them and particularly the young children the younger we get them the more straightforward our work is so I would really encourage people to get in touch
2: I must say just I'm so proud of the work that they do because it's so they do seem to have achieved so much and Okay, no cure, but the number of people, um, children, and especially parents who said, this has been a load off our minds. This has made, made us life just easier for us to bear as a result of going there is, is due to the hard work and also the, the, the kind of therapy that the, the Stammering Center deals in. So I'm, I'm, I think it's a, such a good thing. I've never ever for a second regretted becoming involved.
1: Mind you, it ought to be called the Sir Michael Palin. <laughs> into the stammering. Uh,
2: that might be more, even more difficult to say.
1: Well, thank you very, very much, Elaine. We have a final question, don't we, Adrian? Uh, well, we do,
0: Esther. You know this programme is called That's Afterlife. What's it going to look like, in your opinion, and what are you going to be taking there? Well, I've thought about it a lot,
2: and I thought, I thought a TARDIS would be rather a good <laughs> thing to take. Because if, if, if you were able to get back, you possibly could. It gave you a fair chance. Um, so that's, I, I think I'd go for that. But also, I think I'd take a manual, a book, just called the Egyptian Book of the Dead. I mean, they knew about the afterlife. They studied that. They worked hard on it. And so if you want a good guidebook to the afterlife, I think that that's, that's the one. So I'd take a copy of that.
1: Well, that is the perfect answer from an experienced traveller, isn't it? You know, before you go, you you need a map, you need a guidebook, and according to you, you need a flat pack of loo roll. Not a loo roll, a flat pack of toilet tissue. Yes. Does your stomach get affected? Are you likely to, when you go into these exotic places, are you likely to suffer when you travel to the afterlife?
2: Can do, yes. I mean, if there's any part of the body that I that is a, is, a, is a weakness when I'm traveling. It's usually the stomach, because you have some strange food. It always, it always clears sorry, within the day. I just don't eat anything, drink lots of water, um, and um, it, it clears out of the way. But I think in the afterlife, I, I can't imagine, I just can't imagine my stomach would behave like that. Maybe you won't have a stomach. Exactly, exactly. I think your body would be, be a sort of abstract thing. It doesn't really work in the, in quite the same way. So no restaurants there then? No restaurants, whether one will be able to read, I mean, I, I thought having a torch would be a good idea, but then, you know, the batteries run out.
1: You think it's going to be dark?
2: Yes, yes I do. And isn't that funny, I do. I'm brainwashed by the idea of heaven and hell. Which one are you going to, Michael? Mm. <laughs> hell! Hell, please. I've got my name down. Yeah, I take a fire extinguisher, too. (laughs) Now we're on to (laughs) it.
1: Yes, a fire extinguisher and, yes, if possible, the Egyptian Book of the Dead and some loo rolls. There's quite a lot of flat packs of loo paper. That's that's quite a lot. You'll you'll need a a suitcase, but then you must have lots of them.
2: Yes. Now, I have got lots of them, but I think
1: they have shelves in the TARDIS. Oh, right. You're travelling there that way. Mm. Of course you are. Well, listen, it's been a delight yeah, great to talk to you listen, thank you again. It's been a real pleasure and good luck with the book thank you very much
2: well i'll I'll make sure you know about it as soon as it's as soon as it's finished if it ever is finished but thanks bye Adrian yeah thank you michael yeah. bye. okay bye. bye-bye
1: well, Adie, what a lovely man Michael is
0: well do you know something uh you know there are some people that You look forward to meeting and they let you down. They don't live up to expectation. Everything about Michael there lived up to expectation. Terrific guy. Really, really interesting.
1: And it is fascinating that in all those Python pieces, he excelled in being the villain and in the life of Brian.
0: Yes. No one expects the Spanish Inquisition. Esther, I've got one final email. Um, Alice from Brighton. Dear Esther and Adrian, Who's the most interesting person you've ever met?
1: Well, Michael Palin comes up high on the list. Uh, I think he really right. does, doesn't he? But I suppose, um, yeah, it's difficult, isn't it? Nicky Winton, the man who um, oh, saved yes. a generation yes, of Jewish yes. children from the Holocaust. And we, we told, um, told the, the survivors, that um who hadn't realized that he was be he was responsible for saving their lives and introduced him to the children he'd saved, now grown up. A remarkable man. And what is so lovely about Nicky Winton is that um he will be immortal now because um that story exists on YouTube, on the internet, you know, they've made movies about him. I'm just thrilled. But I think he was he was really fascinating. I I knew him for many years after after we first met on that Life. and um, extraordinary 106 year old when he died
0: wow so anyway that's the end of our podcast and if you'd like to join us again please do subscribe to the that's afterlife podcast found on any of your favorite streaming platforms or you can find us on our website which of course is that's
1: And remember, we will be reading your letters in each episode, so please make sure you send your views things you like, things you hate, things you want us to change, things you want us to feature. Bye for now.
0: See you soon, Esther. That's Afterlife is a Captive Minds production and is series produced by Ross Haley. The creator and executive
3: producer is Liz Mills. (laughs)